good to be with you all. It's good to spend time here together. I'm going to tell a different story now. Not a kid's life story, but uh, one that goes along the same way. I love that I got an aw. Aw. Can't you just do kid's life stories the whole time, Pastor Jay? I should. Next time. Right, Jeff? He gave me the thumbs up. Can't take it back. This is the first time I get to talk to you officially. So I've been up here. I have thanked you. I've given you a brief understanding of what I went through. For those of you who are visiting this week, you don't know the story yet, but that's okay because I'm going to tell the story. I, uh, well, I won't give it away. Spoiler free. Something happened to me, and I'm going to tell that story today. I just want to start by saying thanks to Jeff for giving me the opportunity to preach this week, uh, giving him a chance to take a weekend off, which is nice, and uh, to be able to share this story, the lessons that I've learned. I also want to thank you all again, uh, if I haven't thanked you enough, for the prayers, for the gifts, for the thoughts, for all of those things that uh, have bolstered my wife and I um, to get us through the last couple of weeks. It has been a trying time, and you have helped uh, get us through all of it, and so I'm appreciative for each and every one of you. Um, I'm going to share my story. I'm going to share the testimony of what I went through and uh, give you all an update, because I have a feeling that when you hear the news or when you read the bulletin, when it's like in print, it sounds a certain way, and then your imagination tells you what happened. So I'm going to fill in your imagination with the facts, and then it'll give you a different understanding of what went through. But I want to say this. Uh, I'm called to preach the word of God, not to preach the word of Jay Murdoch. So I'm not going to just tell my story. This isn't just testimony time. I'm going to also read scripture with you here together. So we're going to go through the book of Philippians. Kevin, who set us up with the, the start of it there in Philippians 1.6, we're going to go through different pieces. So if you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, now would be a good time to pull them out. There's a pew Bible in front of you that you can look through. The book of Philippians is on page 1,164 if you need a quick reference, mostly because these pages are super thin. And you can very quickly flip past Philippians and get to another epistle of Paul. Um, can it, let me start with this, in-house. Sorry to the online people. Can you all see what you're doing if you have a Bible in front of you? If not, um, Rebecca, will you do me a favor? Because there are no slides. Usually we keep the slides here so that you can see the lyrics. I'm not going to put anything up on the screen, so you're not going to need anything. Rebecca, do me a favor. Right in front of you, there's a white remote. We just push the up button on it. Here we go. That will give everybody a little bit more to read with. Yeah, for light. Give it up for, give it up for the sun. Go sun. All right, so uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, I'll tell my story, but I'm also going to tell the story of Paul. I'm going to tell the story of why Paul wrote the book of Philippians. We're going we're gonna to crunch a lot of this scripture up today. We're going to chew it up until it makes more sense for us. Um, and I'll only tell my story in as much as it parallels what's going on in the book of Philippians, which thankfully uh, helps reiterate some things and highlight some things along the way. There will be good news at the end of it, not just for me, because obviously if I'm here, the good news is I'm here. So yay, the good news for you. Yeah, thank you, Pete. I need to just start writing in more sound bites to get applause. Like... That is fantastic, especially early on. You don't even know what I'm going to preach on yet, so this is great. Um, 
yeah, I'm going to tell that story as the good news from my life, and then we're going to apply it to your life. So I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes look. I love doing this because I heard the last time I preached, I told you what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, and the people who love to know, like, what's coming so you can like key in at certain times, you know the places where you can nod off and then like come back up and as long as you come back by a certain time or go and get coffee, like make sure you hit certain points has really helped people. So I'm gonna do the same thing. Last time I did a four page sermon, this time I'm gonna do a different sermon structure. Sermon structure this week is called the oops to yeah structure. Oops to yeah. And this sermon structure works well for sermons that are based like a novel, where they tell a story where one thing happens, which causes another thing, causes another thing, causes another thing. Same thing happens in Philippians. Same thing happens in my story, so I'm going to use it here. And I'm going to give you every single piece of the puzzle. So it starts with a plot. There's got to be a thing that happens, and it creates a plot, which is the oops part of it. I'm going to tell you a part of the sermon that upsets the equilibrium. And it's going to create the main issue for us to talk about. From oops, we're going to move to ugh, which is fun to say. Why don't you try that? Ugh, ugh, which is where the plot thickens. We're going to actually drive into the story and we're going to talk about what it is that happened, why it happened, to give an analytical understanding of the causes behind it. From the oops to the ugh to the aha. The aha is where we're going to start to turn the corner. We're going to talk about where the gospel might be influencing this situation and how it is going to give us this little kernel of truth that we're going to build the good news off of. So oops to ugh to aha to wee, which is also fun to say. <laughs> I love that you did that. I love that. I love that also only some of you did it. <laughs> So there was just like a smattering of wheeze, which is about the same as the kid's life story earlier. So I'm on par at this point. We is experiencing the gospel yourself. It is taking that gospel kernel, that clue, and applying it directly to your own life, creating a total resolution of the problem that was started at oops, which takes us to the end, which is yeah. Yeah is anticipating the future how this resolution will affect our communities in the future. Those are the parts, those are the moves, that's the rubric I'm going to follow. Is that making sense so far? If it is, say, wee. <laughs> I'm going to use that more often. All right, let's pray and we'll get started. Father God, it is uh, good to spend time here in your sanctuary on this Sabbath day. For whatever reason, God, you've called this group of people together to be a part of this service, to hear your word told through Paul and the testimony that you've allowed me to share after my episode. God, I'm grateful for Paul. I'm grateful for this church, and I'm grateful for your spirit being here. Allow it to move in this space, get us to a place where we can get to know you better and draw closer to you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. All right, let's start with my story. So my story begins on July 27th. As a matter of fact, one of the people responsible for what happened on that day is sitting right here. Kyle, you just want to like raise your hand really quick. That's Kyle, everybody. Kyle is one of my best friends in the whole world, and he tried to end that relationship by inviting me to play basketball with him at Littleton Church, 
the night of July 27th. It was so much fun. But what's funny is, the one thing that sticks out about that moment, Kyle, is that before we started, keep in mind I'm 35 in this story. And at 35 years old, playing with younger babies, basically, they felt like babies, they like put their shoes on and then they start shooting the basketball. Me, on the other hand, I'm stretching, I'm laying on the ground, I'm putting on like knee pads and mouth guards and goggles and everything. And Kyle comes up to me while I'm in the middle of stretching and he goes, you're totally giving off old man vibes. <laughs> he was right in ways that I don't think he fully understood. Because <laughs> I had a ton of fun and we had so much fun and I went home and I felt Great, this was gonna become a regular thing. I'm gonna play some more basketball. I've got some more time on my schedule. We. And the next morning I woke up and I was sore in ways that I have never been sore before. You ever play basketball and you get that soreness that's right here? Good. Because <laughs> we would have issues if you did. Because when I woke up at 6 a.m., I had pressure right here. It just felt like somebody was poking me in the chest really hard. And so I thought, well, that's weird. But thankfully, it's only 6 o'clock, and I don't have to deal with that because 7 a.m. Jay is more capable of handling this. So I passed the ball to him. And at 7 a.m., I woke up, and unfortunately, those fingers poking me in the chest were pushing harder. And so I do what anybody does, and I consult Dr. Google. And I don't know why I thought of this, but I punched in the words, how to know if you're having a heart attack, which is a good thing that I did, because the answer was there are 13 different pieces to this puzzle, and if you have any of them, you should consult a doctor. And at that point, I had about two. I had pain in my chest and pain in my back, but my arm wasn't numb. My shoulder didn't hurt. I wasn't breaking into cold sweats. About four minutes later, all of those things existed, pretty much all at once. And I went, well, it said any, and I'm at six, but there's 10 more. I don't have all 16. But then I thought of all the people in my life recently who have suffered heart attacks, and all I could think to myself was, if they could do it, why can't I? Which is the weirdest optimism to have in that moment. <laughs> Come on down. And so in my uh, male brain at 7 in the morning, I thought I might be having a heart attack. I'm probably only having indigestion, but I don't want to be wrong about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sneak out to my car. I'm going to drive myself to the hospital, and I'm going to ask a doctor directly, which made sense, except I left my wallet in the house. So I had to go back inside, and guess who was awake at 7.05? My wife. And I am sweating, my face is pale, and she says, what are you doing up so early? And I said, I think you need to take me to the hospital. I believe I'm having a heart attack. And at 7.05, she had been awake for about mm, 90 seconds. Not the best way you wanna wake up. Thankfully, she snaps into action. We drove to Boulder Community Hospital, and I walked in, and I calmly, which apparently that's a mistake, like if you're having a heart attack, let them know you're having a heart attack in whatever tonal voice you want. Because if I walk in and say, hi, I believe I'm having a heart attack, I'd like to be admitted, they go, cool, so your insurance company, 
Meanwhile, like those fingers that are pushing on my chest are starting to feel like rebar, and they're starting to go through, and now they're pushing up against the inside of my shoulder blades. But very calmly, I was admitted to the hospital. They said, we're not sure. Doesn't really look like it. We're going to strap an EKG to you. We're going to test it. We'll see what happens. They looked at the EKG. They thought, eh, I don't know. It could just be indigestion. And all I could think was, this is the most expensive stomach ache <laughs> I've ever had. So they ran it again. And at this point, it is 8 AM, and cardiology is set to walk in the door. They take the second EKG. They say, we're going to get a second opinion. They tap on the cardiologist's shoulder. They say, would you look at this? And you ever seen like those medical shows where all of a sudden like things go very quickly and there's a bunch of people all doing things at once? That's real. <laughs> that really happens. Because apparently when you tap a cardiologist on the shoulder at eight in the morning and you show them the EKG that came off of my records, they will very quickly get to work on you. So I was taken over to the cath lab I was laid down, eight different people started doing different things to me and picking me up and putting me down and moving me around and putting things in my mouth and putting things in my face and they shaved my wrist, which was neat. Never found out why, but <laughs> that's cool. And then they said to me in that moment, how are you feeling? And I said, I feel like there's rebar pressing through my chest. And the cardiologist looked at me and said, well, that's because you're having a serious heart attack. Oops. Let's shift gears. Let's go to Paul's story. Let's go to the book of Philippians. Again, if you weren't here at the beginning, book of Philippians, if you use the Pew Bible in front of you, page 1,164. Book of Philippians is written by Paul. Paul is an author. He writes a bunch of different letters. This one is very different to others in the sense that Philippians is not one of those books where Paul is preaching to a bunch of people where it's like, hey, I heard some rumors. Here you're doing some stuff. Knock it off. Here's a list of why. Here's all the things you should do. Here's what you should do instead. Here's what God wants you to do. Fix it. I don't want to have to write another letter. Philippians is not that book. Philippians is four chapters long, and it's very friendly, and it's very familiar. And something you should know is that it is not actually a letter that is just sent out to the people of Philippi. It is actually the response to a letter that he sent them. And you can find this at a bunch of different places. If you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 12, you get this line that says, I want you to know. I want you to know is only used as a response to somebody's question. And the question most likely was, Paul, how are you doing? We heard you're in prison. How are they treating you? To which Paul answers, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's replying to something that has happened. He does this over and over and over again in these four chapters. This is a reply letter to the Philippians who wrote to him first. Now, I will say this. I've studied Philippians backwards and forwards as a part of this sermon. The commentaries on them are hilarious. Here are a couple of quotes. Paul wrote the book of Philippians, quote, not constructed on a very orderly plan. Someone else said the book of Philippians is spontaneous at best. Someone also said it's one of the most informal of all the apostles' writings. So this is conversational. 
And because it's conversational and because Paul wrote it in the way that he did, I'm going to bounce around a lot. Because Paul himself is not writing this. Paul does not have a pen in his hand. He is not writing this down. He's got Timothy sitting in front of him. Timothy is writing things down. And Paul's basically pacing up against a prison wall. He's chained to it, so he can't go that far. And he's dictating to Timothy what to write. And so it bounces around a lot. And because it does, I'm going to try and put it in an order that makes sense. Because Paul's writings all start the same way. It always starts with like a, hey, good morning. This is who is writing this. And then he greets a bunch of people in the most flowery, Jesus-centered way ever. Grace and peace to you. So good to hear from you. It's me, Paul, and my boy, Timothy. We're just catching up. And we want to send all the love your way. And we want to say thank you for all the things that you've done. It's in every single letter. So we can actually skip the beginning and we're going to move into more of like chapter two and chapter three right at the start. Because the reality is, and as much as this is a very informal letter, there is an oops moment that happens in the book of Philippians and it comes in chapter two. So I'm going to move you ahead and I'm going to introduce you to somebody. And as I told my story, I'm going to tell you the story of a uh, close and personal friend from history. His name is Epaphroditus, which is almost as fun to say as wee. You want to try saying it? Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. I'm going to stumble through that and say it a bunch of times, and I might say it wrong while I'm up here. But Epaphroditus is a very real human being. He really exists in time and space. As a matter of fact, if you go to Philippi today, and you go outside of a dig that is in the city of Philippi, you will find the church of Lydia. Inside one of the walls in the church of Lydia, there is an actual picture of Epaphroditus. He is a young man. He is wearing all purple, and he is holding a scroll. And below it, it says his name, Epaphroditus, soldier of the Roman army. Real human being. We are finding in space and time and in history, Epaphroditus is in existence. By the time we meet him, he is not the young man that we see on the wall at the Church of Lydia. He is much older. He is probably 45 or 50 years older than when they put that picture up on the church wall because we know now he's retired. So he was a soldier. He is retired from his duty, and he now lives on land won by the Roman army in Philippi. We know he's not from Philippi because we can basically parse his name. If I say Epaphroditus, do you see a name tucked somewhere in the middle of Epaphroditus? Think Greek mythology. Say that again. Aphrodite. You've got this Epaphroditus, Aphroditus. You've got this piece of Greek mythology stuck in the middle of Epaphroditus' name. So likely we can figure out Epaphroditus' parents were not from Philippi because we've dug all around Philippi. And you know what's not there? A shrine to Aphrodite. There are no cult followings there. There are no writings on it. Epaphrodite did not have, uh, or Aphrodite did not have uh, a hold in Philippi. But because we think he was part of the Roman guard, he likely spent time in this space. And after it was won by the Roman army, he got licensed to be there with the other veterans who had retired along with him. So this is his story, 
50 years after he has been painted onto a wall, a soldier working now for the guy who built a church in Philippi. You know who built the church in Philippi? You can throw out wrong guesses. This is not a pop quiz. Paul's a good guess because Paul is writing to the Philippians. Paul built the church in Philippi, loved the church in Philippi, built it so he can have this group of people which still exist here at this point. We know Epaphroditus met Paul at church. Paul then goes on his mission work, gets arrested. Now in Rome, someone has to go help Paul. So who steps to the forefront? Epaphroditus, a Roman soldier who is willing to go through what it takes to help Paul in his moment of need. We read this together. I'm not just going to tell you the story. We'll read it. So chapter 2, verses 25, 26, and 27. It says, I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger to my, your, and your minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and he has been distressed, because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. Oops. Let's move forward. Let's go back to my story for a second. We're going to bounce back and forth for a bit. It is now nine in the morning. I have been in the cath lab which I'll just give you this quick thing. If you have a heart attack, which I also want to add this other piece. Uh, I have a feeling people thought like, Jay had a heart attack, and what you pictured was I was standing somewhere doing something incredible in the name of the Lord. I was suddenly stricken. I fell to the ground in a cold pool of sweat. Ambulances emerged, wheeled me up. I saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and they brought me back from the brink of death. Anybody think that? That maybe that was the story? Cody, don't lie to me. God is watching. Cody's got his hand up. There we go. Okay, good. I feel bad when I see kids' hands up. I feel like Natalie's hand went up. I feel bad for Natalie that I scared Natalie like that. It was so much more tame than you might think. I woke up. I felt pain in my chest. I nearly drove myself to the hospital. They brought me to the cath lab. And you know how long it takes to fix a blockage in your heart? Any guesses? Three hours. That's a good guess. Any other guesses? Three minutes, Matt? 30 minutes. Close. You're closer than three hours, thankfully. The answer is 15 minutes. I had 100% blockage at an artery somewhere here. They cut a very small hole in my leg. They snaked something up a main artery. They had a little grabber on the end. It cleared it out, and they stuck a sleeve there so it wouldn't collapse after they were done. In and out in 15 minutes. As cool as it would be to have this, like, gruesome scar. Just be like, this is what they did to me. This is what I have to live with. Nope. Nope. It looks like a mosquito bite on my leg. And now I have a piece of metal inside of my heart that will keep me running Hopefully until God calls me home. 15 minutes. So after 15 minutes, they wheel me into the ICU. I feel like I've been awake through all of it. I was told I passed out for about four minutes thanks to modern medicine and twilight drugs, which knocked me out just long enough for them to puncture that hole, do all the things, and evacuate. 
Good news is, all of the things that they told me sounded like really good things. Like, hey, you're 35, you shouldn't have had a heart attack. That's, that's good. You came in at the right time. Nobody ever comes in. Here's the other thing that like take away the fear. Did you know you can have a heart attack for like a week? I had one for maybe an hour. So thankfully, all of those things that Kyle tried to do to me on the basketball court were thwarted by just listening to my body and showing up. Apparently there's a tachycardial scale that goes all the way up to 200 points. If you get to 200 points, your heart dies. Mine was at 31. Amen. Which means when they fixed it, they said, not only are you gonna feel good, you're gonna feel better than you have in a really long time. There was a bunch of blockage in there. We fixed it and you can now move on from this. And now you're gonna actually run more efficiently. So I felt like a car in the ICU that somebody had just put a brand new tire on, which they kind of did, which is why I'm upright and I feel well and I've been able to do these things and come back to church as quick as I did. And I'm in the ICU and I think that's great. I've skirted death, I looked death in the face and death blinked first. And then I met everyone who works at Boulder Community Hospital. And they don't have the same cheerful tone that I thought they would, which is, you're a hero, you're a survivor, high fives. We got everybody in the hospital line up and they're just gonna give you high fives. Way to live through this, man. No, the first thing that happens is somebody comes in, they tell me about the blood sample that I gave at the beginning and they're like, well, you wouldn't have had this heart attack had it not been for your diabetes. And that was the only thing I could muster was, because guess who didn't know they had diabetes? This guy. And that's a rough way to find out when you think you're about to go to the high five line. Shame on you was not what I thought was gonna happen. They said, oh, you didn't know you had diabetes. I said, not until you said it just now. And then they went through the laundry list of all the things that I had done. Turns out you have diabetes. Your A1C numbers were at 13. They're supposed to be at seven. Your triglycerides came in, which there are people who are smarter than me. Mark at any point, if I get off a medical journal of accepted language, throw a book at me or something. But your triglycerides are supposed to be at 100. I topped the charts to the point that my cardiac rehab nurses uh, had to walk it around to see if they had seen a number so high. Apparently, I scored an 800 on that test. Said, so, well, you were doing something stupid the night before, like playing basketball with diabetes and triglycerides this high. Your diet and exercise weren't where they were supposed to be. And then you went and got your heart rate way up, dropped it down, way up, dropped it down. And you messed with everything that was going on. And you gave yourself a heart attack. Here's the good news. This was going to happen anyways. You're lucky it happened when it did. Because the other thing is, Jeremy Jacob was trying to kill me the next weekend because he invited me to Uray, where he was gonna stick me in a tent in the middle of monsoon season on a mountain, giving runners things to drink, and I would be having a steady heart attack on that mountain. So thanks to Kyle for trying to kill me before Jeremy got to me, because I was way closer to the hospital the second time. The other bad part about all of this was, even if I had everything in line and my triglycerides were somehow managed and I knew about the diabetes. You know what the thing that would have got me anyways? Genetics. Predisposition to heart disease on both sides of my family. So all of these came together and they're breaking this down in front of me and every single nurse is telling me a different version of the same story. 
You know the only word that comes to mind at that point? Ugh. Ugh. Let's go back to Philippians. The reason why Epaphroditus is making this trip to Paul who is in prison is that the church in Philippi has gathered an offering and they want to give that offering to Paul. It's actually the third financial offering that they've given to Paul and you can find that in a bunch of different places. Do me a favor, flip the page, go to Philippians 4 verse 16 and Paul will tell you about the first time they gave a gift. It says there, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. So Paul got a gift when he was writing the book of Thessalonians. And like I said, Paul is all over the place. So I'm going to actually do this in the order it really happened. Verse 16 happened first. Verse 15 happened second. Paul reverse engineered the idea. So you go back to the verse 15 in chapter 4. It says, And you, Philippians, yourself know that day in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, which happened before he got to Thessalonica, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. So they've taken up an offering once, twice, and now a third time. And what you should know about this is that the people in Philippi are not rich. They're in extreme poverty. We know this because the book of 2 Corinthians talks about it directly. Another epistle from Paul, it says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. You can look it up. Don't just take my word for it. It says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. This is the church at Philippi. They've taken up this offering, and now they have to get it to Paul. Now, here's how this happens. Flip back. If you're on, if you're on uh, chapter 4, go back to uh, chapter 2. We're going to read before that section. Uh, it says uh, in verse 25, we're going to go to 30 this time. It says, he's been longing for you. He's been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but me also, lest I should have some sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. Let's just pause there for a second, because here's the reality. Epaphroditus got really sick on a trip, and it's not like he went on a road trip. Here's how far he had to go. In order to get from where he was to where Paul was, it was 729 miles. Depending on the route he took, it's either three more or two less. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt to say he went 729 instead of 731. It would have taken him 57 days to do it. And he would have taken the Sabbath day off along the way. 57 straight days, likely in the middle of winter. We don't know this to be true. Epaphroditus likely caught pneumonia. So he's got pneumonia. He's also got a partner with him because if you're traveling with money, you bring somebody with you so that one, the first guy doesn't steal it and somebody else doesn't try and muscle it off of both of them. So they're going on this trip. Epaphroditus gets sick. He gets to where Paul is, and guess what he has to do with the money? He's got to use it on medical expenses because if he doesn't, he's going to die. And so Paul is really gentle in this section about Epaphroditus. Take him back in. We love this guy. I'm anxious about him coming back, but I want you to bring him back into the fold. It says, verse 29, so receive him in the Lord with all the joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. 
risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. A very poor group of people put together a bunch of money to go and help their friend who was stuck in prison. They picked the strongest guy, a soldier with the will to do it, and he got sick. And unfortunately, the money that they scrounged up for him didn't make it to Paul. Ugh. And now the plot thickens. So when you're in the ICU, uh, Boulder Community Hospital, there's one thing that flows like water, and it is wisdom. And everybody comes in to give you their wisdom, even if you already heard it. I met nurses. I met hospitalists. I met a cardiologist. I met a dietitian. I met every nurse and their assistant. And every single one of them looks at your chart and goes, wow, these numbers are really high. Uh-huh. 800, uh-huh. Well, 35 years old, uh-huh. Well, we got to get that, we got to get that reined in, uh-huh. Got to do something about that diet, uh-huh. Got to get you on an exercise regimen. I'm still here. I can't do anything yet. Didn't matter. Every single person got a story. Here's what you got to do. You're on meds. Take them, Always. Don't ever stop taking them. If somebody tells you not to take them, tell them to call me so I can tell them he's not not taking those drugs anymore. There's a South Beach diet. There's a vegan diet. There's a juicing cleanse. There's keto. There's starvation. I think felt like one of them. No meat or only lean meats. Lean meats, but only white meat, not red meat. Uh-huh. Neat. When I start cooking for myself, I'll get on that. You got to exercise. More, but also less, because that's what tried to kill you. You got to know where to exercise and how and with whom. If you're going to play basketball, you can only go this far. Apparently, you can't play full-court basketball, but you can play half-court basketball or an iteration of that, or shooting hoops, but jump roping, but only in intervals. Uh-huh. Wisdom. No more juice. No more soda. No more this. No more that. Okay. Over three and a half days. Two and a half days? Felt like two and a half months. Everybody who came in had wisdom, and they hammered it home. You need to take this message and accept it now. You need to take this information and acclimatize to it right now. And I'm telling you, it's no joke. The pamphlets and the handouts and the printouts were this high. And they just kept stacking up. And it's all brand new. Because I was fine playing basketball with Kyle. And now I'm a diabetic who has a stent in his heart who needs to move his triglycerides down, who needs to go on a diet and do this and this and this and this. <sighs> Adapt. Not only that, become accountable. And it's a lot. But the good news in all of this and the kernel of truth that came out of this is that I had a team of very expensive friends who became my association. An association, a group of people organized for a joint purpose. Everyone who entered the room was on Team J. 
and they wanted to give me all the information I could use over and over and over again until I had my aha moment. And I did over and over again. Back to Paul in Philippians. Paul, who is worried about himself, he's in prison, he's chained to a wall, he's trying to convert all the Roman soldiers, but he's also at the same time trying to like get rid of the false prophets who were making fun of him in prison. He's afraid of Epaphroditus dying on the way back. He's afraid of these false preachers. He's also really upset with two women. I just want to stop this really quick. Chapter 4, verse 2, on this like super cheery, bright, beautiful, hey, just so good to see you. Chapter 4, verse 2, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Sintiq to agree in the Lord. The only two people who apparently are fighting in all of Philippi. Paul's got a slap to the back of the hand for them. He's worried about all these things all at the same time. And so Paul in this moment is building his own association. And we see that in chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 18. It says, Have this in mind among yourselves, speaking to everybody, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, this is Jesus, did not, out, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, Jesus, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on the name that is above every name, so that the na at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I know there's a paragraph break there, but it's still the same thought. It says, therefore, my beloved, if you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you will shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of light, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I do not ruin in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and will rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. He's building an association, and he's doing it with Jesus at the center. Wherever you are, whatever your story is, wherever you're coming into this, here's the center point. It's Christ, and Christ's first move was not to think of himself as more than or even equal to God, but humbled himself as a servant. I'm sure a ton of people come into Paul's life and tell him how he should do it and why he should do it and when he should do it. Paul says, forget all of that. Scrap it. Start with this. Let's build unity together. Let's take all this information and the acclimatization, except this fact. God loves you and he's at the center of it. Adapt to this reality. If God's at the center, then you're not. And take accountability to the fact that everyone around you should be moving in that same direction. That is the aha moment for the Philippians. Now it says uh, here, this idea, and we're going to start moving backwards here as I, as I finish up. There was a reminder of my calling in all of this. Um, I received prayers and texts and calls and gifts and cards and letters and visits and encouragement and relief in every version came my way. And that association that came from you reminded me of a truth which now bolsters me to be able to preach this sermon and do the things I'm doing here today. It was a call to be accountable. 
When you said, I'm so glad you're okay, you were reminding me how important I was here to this church and a part of this community. And that's not to say I didn't know that before, but it was a thing that I believed. Now it's something that I know, because in as much as I have a stack of things that I need to learn, I have a greater stack of cards and email and text messages reminding me of how beautiful it is to be a part of this community. In the hospital and in this church, here's the reality. It is my decision to take the information that you've given me that I'm appreciated, that the ministry that we do here is important, and apply it and put it into good use. The message that I heard was don't cut your ministry short. Every cardiologist and nurse and hospitalist said don't cut your ministry short. And here's how you do that. Take better care of yourself. Do this instead of that. Learn this instead of that. Do this instead of this. And then I heard how important I was here. And I heard don't cut your ministry short because you're actually doing something. You're actually making positive change here. And if you stop now, then that stops and we don't want that. God's grace and modern medicine and your encouragement has kept me alive. And now it's time to keep living so that I can continue to do the work that God is already doing in me. Changes need to be made, and I will make those changes. And I'm saying those to you now so that you'll hold me accountable. That I'll actually do those things and not fall back into, into worse habits. To be reminded, Jade, don't cut your ministry short. Because we're investing in you. We've been investing in you, and we want to see this continue. And I'm grateful for those things. That was my we moment to find out how important this is and to be a part of that. I have experienced the gospel at the Boulder Church because of all of you. I think Paul struggles with this idea of ministry being cut short as well because he talks about this idea in verses 19 through 26. He goes to this thing of like, I could live, I could die. It'd actually be better to die because then I get to meet Jesus and that seems cool. But if I don't, then I want to be doing ministry here with you. And then he leaves them with this. One, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 to 2, verse 4. It says, if you want to experience the gospel, band together in the unity of Christ and see what he can do through you. So let's turn it back to you now. Instead of my story, here's this. Here's the truth that I've experienced firsthand. The Spirit of the Lord is with us here at the Boulder Church. The Spirit of the Lord is with us at the Boulder Community Hospital, and I experience it there as well. It has shown me that I need to not cut my ministry short. God still has a work to do in me and through me. And because of, of, your, because of your outpouring of love, the future for me and this church and this community looks bright. Here's the thing, it took a heart attack for me to learn that lesson. It's my hope that in sharing this message, you don't have to go through something like that. It's my hope that you will learn before failure what the thing is that you need to hear so that you understand this central truth. Don't cut your ministry short. And I don't know what that thing is, but reflect for a minute on it. What's the thing that might cut your ministry short? And apply that lesson to your own life. Do it preventatively in hopes that you, in whatever blockage you're going through, hopefully not of an artery in your heart, but you can do something now before you hit an emergency. It may save you from a long stay at the ICU or a rehab facility or marriage counseling or the back of a police car. It may keep you from staring down the business end of a weapon because something is blocking all of us. 
and we got to clear that thing out. But don't be the reason why the blockage stays. Don't be the reason why your ministry gets cut short. And learning that lesson now is less costly than it will be to wait until after the emergency happened. Here's another truth. Here's what I know to be true. You are capable, you, this community, are capable of doing great and charitable acts. You're a generous people. Don't wait to be as compassionate as you were with me to somebody else. Because I know now you have the capability of doing it. And the thing is, your gift, whatever that gift is, may be the thing that the person you're giving it to needs to continue on. In deeds, in words, your encouragement has the ability to bolster the weak, to strengthen the weary, and to restore the broken among you. Don't cut your ministry short because there's a good chance that somebody else who's thinking about cutting their short needs your ministry to continue it on. We're all together in this. You didn't have to have a heart attack, but you get to go with me on the journey. And here's the thing, don't take my word for it. Try it today. Don't wait. Do it over ice cream. With something in your hand and walls to break down, encourage somebody today. Tell them to their face, don't cut your ministry short. Whatever it is, whatever you feel called to do by God, remind that person they're important to you. Remind that person they're important to this community. Remind that person they're important to this world. They're important to this body of Christ, which we're all unified in. And then thank them for the ministry that they have done in your life. Give them examples. Not everybody knows that you've touched their life. Let them know, you've done something for me and I just wanted you to know that you did it and I'm grateful for it. Gift them with the understanding that God is still working in their lives. God is not finished with them yet. God is doing a good work in them and through them. Paul's story ends somewhere in chapter four, but I think it should end in Philippians one. And so I'm gonna finish on that and then I'm gonna leave the space and I'm gonna let the guys behind me sing us into the end of this service. But I'm gonna read this as prayers from Paul, but hopefully they echo through the halls of history to be words from me shared with you today. Philippians 1, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God in all of my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine, for all making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen.